Welcome to the St. Emelin's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Liz Crow. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about debriefing. What is it that we can do best to help each other and our staff after a critical event in our emergency department or critical care unit? Liz, it's probably best if we start by actually defining what we mean by debriefing. I think this is one of the really tricky issues is that I don't think we're using a universal term. So there are two types of debriefing. The first is a hot debrief, which happens in the immediate seconds and moments after an event, before the team dissipates and goes back to their various departments, where everyone just stops and reflects on what's just happened. It's much more operational. There's very little psychological component to it. And in those moments, you would talk about whether or not you needed to do something more formal down the track. Debriefing is not sitting around having a cup of coffee. It's not just chatting informally. Whether it's a hot debrief or a formal debrief, both needs to be formalised processes run by people who have a sense of what they're actually doing. So just to clarify, the hot debrief is after the event has finished, straight away, where you literally go through what happened why it happened and perhaps things you might do differently, but it's not about the psychological component at all. It's not meant to be. If what people actually really need to unpack is the psychological, it might bubble over. Our wonderful colleague, Ashley Liebig and Rob Orman have done a great podcast on what hot debriefing is. So I would encourage people to check that out. However, the hot debrief is really recognizing that people have to go straight back onto the floor or straight back into the field. And it's just saying what just happened, what were the learnings and do we need to do anything further from here? A formal debrief really shouldn't happen for five to seven days after the event because people are too heightened, there's too much emotion around it, and the evidence doesn't seem to point that this is an effective time to do it. Just before we move on to that formal debrief, the hot debrief is in the recess room maybe, things have just ended, you're going to talk through what happened, perhaps some reassurance that people did the right thing, but that's the extent of the psychological component to that, and then we're looking later down the track at something more formal. Well, in our hospital, the way that we would do that is that it's recognised that there's been an event that has caused global staff distress. So often that's around a clinical situation. However, we have also had instances where something really awful has happened to a staff member over the weekend and they've been killed and we've needed to get together and reflect on that as a team. Or it could be when you've got a really challenging family or a complex ethical situation that is in the hospital and there's some moral distress around it or people just need a place to work through what's occurred and where do we go from here. I think this is one of the problems that we don't have this universal definition of debriefing or we don't perhaps have other clever or thoughtful labels on the other things that we need to talk about. So we don't tend to talk about reflective practice or clinical supervision. So everything gets lumped under the term debriefing. So this one great big umbrella term, but in this instance, we're going to just talk a bit more about how as a leader in a department, you might organize a debriefing five to seven days after the event that's happened, who's going to lead that, what format that might take, and just give some ideas about how you can best do that. I think this is a really difficult skill, but it's really important because debriefing done badly can, I think, Liz, be really destructive and actually have negative consequences, even though people are trying to do the right thing. Absolutely. So in the 90s, and there was a guy called Mitchell who put out a whole framework around critical incident stress debriefing. And a number of people were trained in that, certainly in Australia I was, and it was the framework that everyone followed. Then what happened was there was, in 1991, there was a Cochrane review where they looked at 11 papers that had some evidence following a single 
psychological intervention, which is a very different thing to what we're talking about today. And they found out of those 11 studies, three of the cases had done more poorly Six, there'd been sort of nothing, a neutral impact. And as a result of that, Cochrane came out and said, we really don't think debrief is wise and everyone should stop it. However, no process was was put in place to replace that. And I think that's really neglectful. What people are doing in health is very difficult and at times very traumatic. And staff need somewhere safe to unpack that, not just the operational component, but also what was the impact on them psychologically. In our hospital, what would happen is someone identifies that the staff need to get together to have a debrief. We alert staff when the debrief is going to be, which is always five to seven days following. Although in the literature, it says there's no end point when a debriefing needs to occur. So if everyone's still chatting about it three or four months later, it's not too late to pull everyone together. And so we send an SMS and an email to all of our staff to give them lots of notice that a debrief is going to occur. So the staff have been alerted. They make an effort to turn up. There's no compulsion to turn up. They don't have to go. It's a choice thing. Is there not a danger in that, that some of the people who really need to talk about these things might be mulling it over on their own? How can you identify actually the people who don't go to the debriefing or encourage them to go and maybe try and make that valuable for them? So again, what the evidence says is that there should be absolutely no compulsory attendance to a debriefing and people shouldn't even be unduly influenced to attend. Debriefings are not going to work for everyone. There are some people because of their nature, because they're more introverted, because they're private, that debriefing will never occur for. And this is why we keep talking about there needs to be a framework for well-being. It's not one size fits all. It's absolutely voluntary. We try to do it at a time where we can maximize the amount of staff who can attend. And there's no way to get that perfectly right in a hospital environment where people work shifts. So I think that's the first really important take-home message for me from this, is that there has to be other things as well. Just organising a debriefing, however good that is and however many, you need other stuff in the background to support those who maybe don't choose to go, those who can't go, and to keep the support going. It's a bit like when we talked about breaking bad news. And we'd so not it's not breaking bad news, it's not a one-off, it's communicating, it's an ongoing relationship. So we can have a debriefing session. And that's just part of a whole framework. If we move on and talk now, we've invited the staff along. Where should this take place? Is this in the department, out of the department? What's the environment? How do you set the place up so that it feels welcoming, but not too formal? It is a formal event. That's the other thing. It's not something casual. You, you don't order in pizza and everyone sits around and tries to jolly each other along. We have a very specific framework. And I guess for us, when we're going to organise a debrief, the first thing that really needs to happen before you even invite the staff is you have to work out who's facilitating it. And in our hospital, it's usually myself or another member of the social work department and one of the consultants or whoever it is who can provide the most holistic story about what happened for that individual or what happened for that event. A lot of the time in my decades experience of doing this is what's actually causing people the most distress is a concern that they were too slow to alert, that they've made a medical error or because they don't understand the whole context around the environment. 
often in the just brief telling of the story, people can be like, oh, I didn't realise that that person was on palliative care or I didn't know this was life-limiting. That's why we made this decision and that's why this then played out the way it did. That other person has to be very knowledgeable about the case. And so I often ask our doctors to do some homework and come with a summary. They don't need to talk for half an hour, maybe a five to 10 minute summary about every single component of that event, what we need to know. You know yourself, Ian, when you attend a MET call, you can come in at any point of that and not know what happened before or how decisions were made. There's no context. And I think that's how every debriefing needs to start. And I think that brings in another component, which is don't forget the staff who were involved with the patient before you were. And that could be pre-hospital staff, those in the ambulance crew who might have attended the patient. It could be members of the fire service who've cut the patient out of a car. All of these people are just as likely to need a debriefing as, as your staff in the department. So try and find ways that you can invite them along too. I know that we've had Coast Guard come to some of ours. Think about every person who might benefit. And as Liz says, it's not compulsory. If you invite them and nobody comes, that's okay. But you need to invite them to give them that option. It's hard to do because it's surprising how little contact we have sometimes with these staff who don't work with us, but it will be really worthwhile. Sometimes after, tragically, a child has died after a prolonged admission in ICU, we might have a debrief and our emergency department will say, oh, we'd like to attend that. And I actually often don't let them. I will say... Why don't we do a debrief for your emergency department about what we know and then we can give you a brief overview about what happened. We do know that there is some evidence that when you have to just vicariously hear things that you weren't exposed to, it can escalate your distress. We absolutely let them know what the end result was, but they don't need to know that the kid that came in with sepsis, that they had a really messy recess but managed for the child to survive, then came up and had a a four-week ECMO run with us and became so necrotized throughout the body that was really confronting to look at. That's not a piece of information that's actually going to aid them. It's actually going to add to their distress. So you you have to be careful to compartmentalize sometimes the course of something when you're going to have a debrief. It's the same that at times our admin staff or the cleaning staff or our auxiliary staff may have been exposed to something that they would really benefit from being debriefed about. However, we don't invite them in with our nursing, doctors and allied health because they will be exposed to things that they don't understand the context and confidential medical information that they're not actually privy to have. The debriefing is really complex in some ways and requires some skills. It's why you can't do it over a cup of tea. Sometimes when we have really tricky debriefings or there's been antagonism between departments, I will spend hours preparing for the debriefing, making sure that we're not going to let politics come into it. There's no victim blaming. This is not a root cause analysis. It's not a time for pointing fingers. This is really about what is best for our staff. So you have to make sure you have the right people in the room with the right intentions and the right agenda and people skilled enough to manage that if it gets out of control. I think what you're saying is that this is not a simple, straightforward process. This is not a one-off. You may have multiple different sessions for different groups of people and who you invite is really important. You have to think really carefully about who needs to know what. The thing that we're all going to struggle with, and I think I'm worrying about now, is this is a lot of time. Mm. This is going to take an awful lot of time to do. People maybe coming off shifts or 
the hours spent to prepare for it. You've described how we're going to invite people. It's a formal process. For us, that would take place in one of the teaching rooms, perhaps. People come in, having a senior medical person there is really helpful to describe the case. And for me, I would choose to have somebody who's not senior in medical leading the debriefing after that. What happens next? You've got people in the room. You've gone through the case. They're sort of sitting, listening, almost like a lecture. How do you take that forward from there? Actually, there's a step even before the story. Every single time we have a debriefing, I'm very clear about what the rules are. This is a confidential space. This is not where we're accusing or making, you know, like trying to find out what happened or pointing fingers. This is really about how do we understand what happened as a team? What was the impact on us and where do we go from there? So I set the rules that whilst we might be able to describe some of the clinical components of what we've learned in the debrief with our colleagues who aren't in attendance, it's not something where, you know, I can come out and say, oh, Ian Beardsall sobbed like a baby in there or, you know, he, he was the only one that wasn't distressed. That's a really confidential space. We don't allow people who weren't involved to come in. Sticky beak, it's not a voyeuristic thing. We don't allow line managers to come in. There's no note taking. You have to be really careful because if any of this stuff ever goes to a coroner, if you take notes, it can be subpoenaed. It's really important that you set those ground rules very early on so that people know and have agreed upon what we're doing. Then we go to the story. And I guess the next step after that is how do we actually feel that the whole thing went? So if it's a recess, we might unpack that. If it's a prolonged admission for ICU, you know, four or five weeks, we might talk about what were the sticky points? What were the things that we did really well? What were the learnings? What were the things that if we had this case, exact same case come in again tomorrow, would we do anything differently? What would we absolutely keep as the same? What were the things about communication that could have been improved? What were the things about communication that we're really proud of? Did we have good medical leadership and nursing leadership during the process? You know, where we really unpack it. And and again, that requires some vulnerability and some honesty. However, in my experience, when a story is told very comprehensively and well, you'll often see the psychological relief on people's places, often particularly the nurses where they, or the junior staff where they say, okay, I didn't make a mistake or I did call this early enough or I was fast enough calling up the drugs or this is why this happened. It wasn't because we weren't giving fluids or this was the doctor's thinking at the time and that now makes sense to me. So some really important points there. Debriefing is not a root cause analysis. They are completely separate for completely different reasons. This is a private space where colleagues are talking confidentially to each other about what's happened in a really difficult environment. It's to support each other. It's to find out where we did things well, to think about how we could do things better next time, and to bring something good from what's clearly been a really distressing event. It's not just about reassuring staff and their psychological well-being. It's about moving forward when something bad has happened. Now, Liz, I have to chair meetings often in my role. It is really tricky to make sure that the dominant personalities don't dominate a meeting. And I guess this is exactly the same. How do you draw people in to talk about this without letting it becoming, we've all got them, the, the more chatty people who want to have their voice heard. Actually, the people I worry about are the ones who don't speak. Is it important that we get everybody to say something or just keep an eye out for them and have a word afterwards? How do you approach the person who sits quietly and doesn't say anything? Because they're the ones I worry about. Well, and, and you needn't. If you're a private person before an event and then you have a grief event or you're exposed to something at work, you still remain a private person. They might want to come 
and listen and reflect and never say anything. And that doesn't mean that they're psychologically damaged or they're more at risk. So again, the evidence would say to us that following a really critical event, if you have someone that sobs and sobs and sobs for days and someone who doesn't cry at all, six weeks down the track, four months down the track, how you were reacting in the initial days to weeks following that event is not predictive of how you go long-term. We don't need to be overly concerned. I think we do need to be strategic and I'm lucky in that often I know the people that I'm debriefing. So I will strategically put myself beside the chatters so that I can put my hand on their leg at some point and say, thanks, let's let's hear from someone else. They are going to be more verbose. They're more confident to speak in a group. And so we do need to be mindful of that. So sometimes I'll say, were you the nurse? who was on or were you the junior doctor who was present at the time? Is there something you wanted to add? It's just about inviting them in without saying, how did you feel about that? Well, have you been upset? Did you think that, you know, you don't have to ask these direct questions. It's like, were you the person there? And that pause can allow them to then decide, do I want to join in on this conversation or not? So you've set up the rules You've gone through the case, discussed it in a sort of story fashion, but talking about the bits that matter to the staff you've got in the room. You don't need to extend and talk about the bits that maybe happened down the line in critical care. And you're making it relevant to them. The staff you've got in the room are the ones who are directly involved with this event. And you've opened up a conversation and you've tried to in- enable that conversation to happen around the room. How long do you think these things need to last? I'm going to guess that you're going to tell me there is no time frame. It takes as long as it takes. But I do imagine there can be almost too much rumination if you're not careful. Is there a point at which you think we've done enough here, we've talked enough, or do you just wait for everybody to have their say? I think that is a skill set. Most of our debriefings take between 45 and 90 minutes, depending how complex things are. And, you know, there are times where we call debriefs and no one shows, and that's fine. They know that they had the opportunity to discuss it. They don't think it's important. They don't show, I'm not offended by that. I would rather us offer it and not have them attend. I guess the thing is, is that we've gone through the narration, then we've gone through the kind of operational components of it and how we think we functioned as a team. And then we take it to how do we actually feel about this? What were the things about the case that has made us ruminate? What is it that's causing the distress? Is it something that was psychological? So, you know, like I I remember in a debrief where a mother kept yelling out, please don't leave me, please don't leave me. And so it made the staff feel when the child died that they'd really let the mother down. In the debrief, I was able to say that in the bereavement work, how relieved she'd been to be allowed to stay in the room. And that caused enormous psychological relief for the staff. At other times, it's because... People are very concerned that the child didn't have a chance to go on to ECMO. They're very concerned that it took so long for the staff to arrive in a MET call. And when we unpack it, sometimes there has been a delay. So it's like, you know, what are the processes? How are we going to fix this for the future so people don't feel abandoned? The ruminating thing, it requires some skill. And I would encourage people to to remain really mindful that if you're facilitating this, you have to think not about what's your agenda, but stay very connected to the staff at the time. And if I think that people are getting stuck in a bit of a circle, I remain curious about that. This is the fifth time I've heard this come up. What is it about this point that people are stuck on and how can we help unpack it further or resolve that or what do we need to do further? The next stage is when we're talking about how people feel about that is just addressing it. And sometimes all we can say is, yes, this was sad and our distress is normal. One of the most powerful things in a debriefing is to know 
Everyone had the same fears. Everyone had the same concerns. Everyone's got the same level of distress. And that's a relief in itself. Because being distressed working as we do is normal. That's a normal reaction to have. I imagine there's people listening to this thinking, this just would never happen in our department. We just don't talk like this. And I know that there are departments like that. But we will talk in a further episode how maybe you can help make a culture in your department where this sort of discussion isn't extraordinary. This is routine because it should be routine. We're confronted by these things every day at work. And this needs to, you need to have time to make sure that people can talk about these things. I think that leads to an important point. In actual fact, when you want to build a really healthy, well-being and robust culture in your department, you should be debriefing everything. You shouldn't just be debriefing when there's been a problem or there's an issue. Sometimes say people say, oh, that went really well, so we don't need to do it. And I say, actually, we need to get used to unpacking things. We need to get used to describing how we felt things went. And so it's really healthy to uh, unpack the great events that happen as well so that debriefing and leading debriefing and communication is just what we do. So then when something happens, it's familiar. It's not a thing of shame. It's not like, oh, you know, you're distressed, so we better all sit down and unpack that. It's this is our culture. We have each other's backs and that you are important enough for us to listen to all the time. I know that people worry about the time this process takes, but I think it really is so valuable if you can get buy-in from your department to do this on a regular basis. I know that in my department, we talk about debriefing for the truly tragic events and not the routine. So it's a death of a child. Doesn't happen very often in a UK emergency department where a child's come in and died with you. And that somehow merits a debriefing. I think there's other cases that actually we don't think, oh, it doesn't merit the time. But what we're really saying is, any case could merit a debriefing and that's okay. I don't think myself that having a culture where we talk about everything is necessary, but I do think we need to lower the bar for what the cases are that deserve this process. Because right now the bar is really high and I think it's really high because this takes time and it's that old thing of we're too busy. And one of my colleagues at work said something to me really interesting recently. He said, it's not that you're too busy, Ian, it's that you've just chosen to not prioritise this. And he's right. So you're not too busy to do this. You're just choosing to do other things. And maybe it's time to look at your department and decide if you want to choose to do things differently. So Liz, you've had this debriefing session. It's coming to an end. How do you round up and finish off? And do you ever offer a follow-up session for that one particular case? Or is it one debriefing and you're done? We always finish up about normalising, 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 normalising about how everyone's feeling and also just talking about what is a normal psychological response to something that's really confronting and and horrible and distressing. So we talk about you can still be having sleep disturbance. You may have appetite changes. You may be having flashbacks. You know, why do we have flashbacks? What is that about? How do you know when you're in trouble? Where would you go next? Unfortunately, our hospital, like most, the only option for psychological support on an individual basis is with the Employment Assistance Program, and people have varied responses or successes with engaging in that. If we have concerns that we haven't been able to capture all the staff at once, we will have a second debriefing. If what we're debriefing about is a child who's still in the unit, because I work in ICU, we absolutely will do that again. In ED, you might have an occasion where someone comes in, they're highly aggressive. So you might debrief that, but then you might decide to get together and people will call it a debrief because they won't know what else to say about how would you manage aggressive patients 
again in the future and what causes anxiety and what are the processes that are working. And it just creates a different mindset when what you're talking about has this kind of narrative, then an operational component, then a kind of communication, team-based component, then a psychological component that is very different than if you just have a meeting about how to deal with the aggressive patient. You don't get to see the emotion evokes. You don't get to hear from some of the very junior staff who never get the chance to attend those meetings. I think that this is a really valuable tool. Sometimes we get called a debriefing and when they come in, it's actually the, the team is really unhappy with the consultant that's on about their management of a case, but it allows us to unpack it and move forward as a team. And none of that is a waste of time. You know, if you stop one person from calling in sick, one person from leaving the organization, that that's invaluable. And not all of them are very time consuming. Sometimes they can happen quite quickly because we're all really clear about what happened or everyone had that one burning question answered quite quickly. I think what you've been describing to me, Liz, is really, really important. I've learned a lot talking now. Debriefing needs to be a normal event. And actually, it's not an extraordinary thing. It doesn't only happen when a child dies or when something awfully tragic happens. I was struck by you saying there that you sometimes have a debriefing when the child is still in the unit. They've not even discharged or died. There's been no finality to that episode. We need to build departments where this culture exists, where these conversations can take place. And as you say, the investment you're making here will be rewarded, maybe not in obvious terms, but by people being more engaged, by them wanting to come to work, by them attracting other staff to come and work in your department. This is an investment that's really worth making. That's right. And look, people often say, look, I don't have the skills. You know, like, how do you acquire the skills? I've never seen any formal training that you can do on this. This type of debriefing is very different from simulation debriefing, although I think some of the skill set that are provided following debriefing and simulation is similar. It's a very different framework. There's not the psychological safety that you can often provide around a simulation, but some of the skills are transferable. However, if you're just starting off and you've got no one, like, you know, I started off by just having a go and saying to people, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. Let's try this process. And we we kind of experimented a little bit until we came a framework which everyone felt most comfortable with. Some of this could be culturally contextualized, you know, that some people may not like the way that we do it and that's okay. It can be modified, but it just needs someone who's got very good communication and empathic skills, who has the ability to kind of help lead the team through it and who you co-facilitate with is everything. You need a doctor or whoever is the main person who's going to be able to provide the most context that will be helpful for the people who are attending. We hope you found this podcast useful. we be really interested to hear about your experiences of debriefing and to learn from you how it is you've approached this process in your hospital. Please feel free to get contact with us via the St. Emeline's blog site or Twitter or any of those other modern communication methods that exist these days. We'll be back very soon with more from Liz, bringing her worldly wisdom to those difficult topics in the emergency department and critical care. But for now, take care.